Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We continue in our study that we've labeled B.C. or Gospel B.C. where we are looking at the unfolding of God's redemptive plan and the promise and the fulfillment of the promise from beginning to end. We began not at the beginning in creation, but at the fall as an answer to our questions. Why is the world the way it is? Why is this world to be seen so broken? Or why am I uh, the way I am? And the answer to that is very simply, as sin entered into the world, broke everything, and we continue to live as those who are infected by that same condition. And yet we also saw from the very beginning, God's response to that sin is not as we tend to imagine or sometimes even seem to communicate, which is to smack us down. But his promise from the very beginning, we see even in Genesis chapter 3, is that he would reconcile man to himself once again through the sending of a Savior, the promised seed of a woman. We see from the very beginning the gospel is proclaimed, even found in Genesis chapter 3. We moved ahead and we looked at a very common condition of desiring to make a name for ourselves as we looked at the people in the plains of Shinar after Shinar after the after the flood and they were rebuilding their culture and making a name for themselves wanting to get ahead be important seem to to achieve greatness and the Lord comes down uh, as they were trying to reach up in their religion the Lord comes down uh, from heaven as a foreshadow of what is to come and also to break up their own attempts as a demonstration that it's not our efforts to reach God that matter, but God who comes down to us and has come down to us in the person of Jesus that matters in our relationship for God. And that our desire to make ourselves great as an expression of getting accepted by God is foolishness. But that if we trust in Jesus Christ, he has promised to give us a name that is great. We looked last week at the call. The call on Abram, the one whom, through whom God was going to bless uh, the entire earth and realize as we look at his life that God's call can sometimes be unsettling. The call to be a Christian is not as we sometimes make it out to be or as some proclaim it to be, a life of ease where God gets on board with our plans, blesses whatever we want to do, and then we have God on our side but rather the call that God has given to Abram, which is a call that is similar to our own calls in one sense, is this. God calls us to his purpose, and sometimes his purpose is not what we had desired. God's, uh, initially, God's purpose is for our benefit, and God's purpose is to bless the entire world. But we must be in line with his purposes rather than trying to get God to align himself with ours. And when we are in line with God's purposes, even as we experience sometimes discomfort or sacrifice, we find joy that we can find in no other place. And that joy is expressed when we give our lives away because God has called a people and the covenant promise is this, I will bless you and be your God, but you will be a blessing to the nations. And the call of God's covenant, the following of Christ, belonging to him, is a call to trust God and let him and, and have him be our God as he is rightfully, uh, rightly, rightly do. But if you, call, if, if you call God your God, that call is also to serve others and to be a blessing to them. God blesses us in order to be a blessing. We move ahead quite a bit this morning into Genesis chapter 37. As we look at a familiar story, the story of, of Joseph, 
uh, title, I've titled it Dominion, which is simply a word, uh, another word for sovereignty as we consider the sovereignty of God this morning. Now, I also don't want you to be alarmed as you look at the text that we're looking at this morning, thinking back as he went 45 minutes last week with nine verses, and now we have 14 chapters. This is the second service. We have no place we need to be. Uh, no, I'm... We're going to take a significant overview. We're going to look at a few verses in chapter 37 first to lay a foundation. We're going to skip ahead and look at verses in chapter 50, and then we will work all things together in a very, very quick flyby uh, on the chapters in between. Uh, they're not unimportant. They are essential. Uh, but nevertheless, they are details to the bigger picture this morning. So as we come to the Word, let me pray as, uh, as we prepare to hear what God has to say. Father, we come knowing that you have told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, I pray that as we come and we commit ourselves and honor you by giving our ear to you and desire to understand what you have said, I also pray that we would feed upon this word and that our souls would be strengthened and that we would realize that you provide us everything, not only to live our lives, but to know what life is, which is to know you and to walk with you and to find joy and peace in you. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this word this morning, that you would shape our minds and therefore our lives, and that we, as a result, would also love you even more than we do as we come right now, because we will understand your love is far greater than we have imagined. Father, bless us in this way, that we may bless you with our affection and with our submission trust to you. I pray this in the name of Christ, your greatest provision, and who is the Word incarnated. Amen. Genesis 37, beginning our reading in verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood aright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. 
May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. I'm not one who watches much reality TV. That's my nice way of saying I don't watch any reality TV. I may be an old fuddy-duddy, but I, I resonate with what columnist James Walcott wrote for Vanity Fair. He's a columnist for Vanity Fair and for The New Yorker, and as a cultural critic, here's his analysis of reality TV. In the voyeurism of reality TV, the viewer's passivity is kept intact, pampered and massaged, and force-fed chicken McNuggets of carefully edited snippets that permit him or her to sit in easy judgment and feel superior at watching familiar strangers make fools of themselves. Reality TV looks in only one direction, down. I wish I had written it. I couldn't have done better myself. And so, loving his words, I'm not one who watches much reality TV. But in saying that, I, I am not saying that there is no place for reality TV. There may be. There may be some redeeming quality that escapes me. It's above my ability to comprehend. I've been told that there is. I don't believe it, but I've been told that there is. And so I'm not suggesting that as a Christian that you shouldn't watch reality TV. I wonder why you do, but it has nothing to do with being a Christian or a non-Christian. I just wonder what you could possibly be thinking when you're reading that. So whether you're one who thinks reality TV is permissible or whether it is entertaining or whether it should be prohibited, it's not the point that I want to make this morning. But what I do want to ask is this question. Do you think any of the families on TV can be any more dysfunctional than this family through whom God has said that he was going to bless the entire world? They would make a reality TV show of their own, except that it would be so far-fetched that nobody would believe it. And so therefore, people may not watch. But it really is amazing. This family, as using my counselor lingo, I would say has issues. They are highly dysfunctional. Some of you may look at them and say, this is the family that God's going to bless the world with? Really? And others of you may take some comfort from the Scriptures in this way because you look at this family and say, well, at least my family's not that bad. But this indeed is the family through whom God has said that he is going to bless the earth. And if you know the story, or if you think about it at any length, for any length or at any depth, you really have to scratch your head and say, what is God thinking? And yet through this family, we see a beautiful and powerful demonstration of God's sovereignty. Let's consider first the cast of characters as we consider uh, what God is doing in their midst. We begin with the father, Jacob. Those of you who grew up going to VBS or in Sunday school know that Jacob also had another name that he went by at a time in his life where he encountered God, was wrestling with God, asking God for a blessing. God wrestled with him, broke his hip, left him with a lifelong limp, and then renamed him Israel. And then throughout the scriptures, the name Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably. In fact, even in this short passage that we read this morning, he's referred to beginning as Jacob and then talks about as Israel. He goes by both names throughout all of the scripture. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, you know that Jacob grew up in an unhappy childhood. He had, an, had a twin brother who was just moments older than him. But in their household, as he was growing up, the older brother was greatly loved, and 
Jacob was not loved as much by their father. He lived his life trying to gain his father's affection, trying to gain his father's approval, and ultimately trying to gain his father's blessing. And he took the matters into his own hand in order to gain that blessing. Why his father loved his brother more, we're not necessarily sure. We can only speculate. Because the scripture tells us that his older brother, a man named Esau, was just a, a masculine man. He was hairy. I don't know what that has to do with masculinity, especially since I couldn't grow a beard even if I tried. Here's about a month's growth right now. Um, but, um, and he was a rugged, rugged picture of masculinity, whereas Jacob was less so. Jacob was more of the, the mama's boy. If we were to put them in their contemporary teenage culture, we would say that Esau was the jock and Jacob was the president of the poetry club. We might say, as a friend of mine had described it in a way that is that I have some reservations about, but I think does, does tell the true story accurately in a memorable way. Because he describes it and he says, Esau is a hunter. Jacob was a golfer. I wasn't sure I liked that because I'm not a hunter and I, I am a golfer. But I figure I'm okay because when I golf, I spend a lot of time in the woods anyway. So, um, but you get the picture of the difference in their personality. And so for whatever the reasons, Daddy loved Esau more and Jacob spent his life trying to gain Daddy's affection. You would think with that kind of a background that there's a man realizing the pain and the anguish that he had and trying to get his father's love to trying to, to validate himself, that he would be very conscientious that as he has his own children, that he would not put any of them in the same circumstance. And yet we look at the text, and what does it say? He has 12 sons, and there's one that clearly he loves above all of the others. They all know it. Not only do the 11 who feel less love think that dad loves more, the one who is loved more knows that he's loved more, and, and he demonstrates it by gifts and gestures over and over again. He demonstrates his great love for the one child and his oh, adequate love for all of the others. And, and so he cultivates within his own family uh, jealousy, as it's described in the text, and, and bitterness. He is part of the problem. He's part of the cause of the dysfunction in his own home. This man, this patriarch of our faith, has created a dysfunctional home. Then we look at the brothers. We won't look at them individually this morning because the text looks at them together. And, but we do, get to, we do know all we need to know about them uh, in the text because in this text, we're told three times that they hated their brother Joseph. I mean, it begins relatively benign. They just felt hatred toward him. Then he tells them about his first dream and says they hated him even more. And then he tells them a second dream, and they hated him even more. So this was not just a, 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 a light, simmering hate. This was deep and growing. They hated him. They hated him more. They hated him even more. I mean, their, their hate is just keeps on going. And then as we see in the subsequent passages, which we'll come back to in a moment, the expression, the ultimate expression of their hatred. It wasn't just a hatefulness that they felt, and then they kept to themselves or talked about within themselves or took it to their counselor. It was a hate that they acted out in a way that was, was hideous and, 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 and um, well, it was hideous. Um, and then we come to Joseph, the one who is without question the, the protagonist of this portion of the scripture, the one who the story is told about, whose, whose activities are, are chronicled 
uh, throughout these chapters. Now, before we look at Joseph, we, we do need to understand something as we look at his life uh, about how we look at Scripture. So often, we have this tendency of looking at Scripture and try to figure out, okay, who is who's the central character, who is the hero, and who are the villains? And we do not become like the villains, and whoever the hero is, we look for certain qualities in their lives and then try to emulate them and pattern our lives after the life of the hero. But when we look at this story, particularly at the very beginning of the story, we need to realize there are no heroes. Everyone in this story is wearing a black hat. Nobody is sympathetic character. And Joseph, perhaps least of all, at least in my estimation, at the beginning of the story. What we see about Joseph is that he was basically an obnoxious teenager. We see the first thing that it tells us about him is he was, he was out with his brothers and he came back and offered a, a bad report. At the very least, we understand from the very beginning is Joseph is 17 years old and he's still a tattletale. His brothers were out either doing certain things or not doing certain things, and so he runs back, tells dad in order to get dad angry at the people who dad doesn't love as much as they love Joseph in the first place. And so we get the impression this is a pattern. He gives a, a bad report, and so he is a tattletale. Bad enough if he's eight or nine. The kid's 17. He should have grown out of that at this point. But even the idea that bad report, as bad as it, enough as it is that he is a tattletale at this age, if we consider what the implications of the phrase are in the Hebrew, where it's translated as bad report, we realize it's even worse. Because bad report in Hebrew doesn't just say that he's coming back and he's giving information about bad things his brother's doing. The Hebrew indicates that actually the report itself is flawed. It is bad. It is filled with half-truths and lies. And so he's going out, he's spying on his brothers, and he comes back and he speaks and tells his dad half-truths and lies for the sole purpose of getting their father upset and angry with the brothers, and he seems to take some perverse pleasure in giving these false reports to their father. We see Joseph is not just a tattletale, but he's a liar, and he's a deceiver, and he's a manipulator. If you know the story, he's just like dear old dad. I frankly, I look at this, and it's just not hard for me to understand why the brothers hate him so much. He's just obnoxious. I don't have a brother, but if I had one, I, I'm sympathetic to these other guys. And so there's the background. This is what Joseph has done, and it, this is the nature of the relationship. And so now we, we move into Joseph also had dreams. And in this case, these were dreams that were revelations of what God was going to do in the future. We need to understand that God has, at times in history, worked through dreams. It is not the normal way that God does work. We cannot say that God never does it because we see clear evidences at different times throughout the scriptures. And that's led some people in our churches to assume, I have a dream. I want to be a dreamer. I'm going to be the one. And then wonder sometimes, what is God trying to say to me through my dream? The reality is we need to understand that while there are dreams that God has, real, has given revelation of what is to come in the scriptures, there are few and far between. There's a handful of them over a several thousand year period. It's not exactly the normative pattern for people in a church to say, I have a dream. Which, which, what is God trying to say to me through my dream? My guess is for most of us, God is trying to say, you shouldn't have eaten the tacos. But in this case, God was at work. Though his brothers didn't necessarily understand that. 
See, another thing that we need to understand about the dream, and as Joseph is to give it, is that if I was to ask you what your dream is, what are your dreams? Most of you would probably give me a list of aspirations, goals that you want to accomplish, things that you want to see happen at some point in your life. Some of you might even be a little more creative and, and begin to imagine and say, if I was God for a day, here's what I would like to accomplish, which goes beyond your ability, things that you would like to see coming to fruition. But inevitably, when we talk about our dreams, we're talking about what is the desire of our hearts. And while that is the common way that dreams function in not only our lives, but throughout scriptures, again, from time to time, God speaks through somebody that may not even be a reflection of their own heart. But we need to understand that when Joseph comes and gives the dreams to his brothers, Joseph is revealing something, but the brothers assume that he is just saying, this is what I dream about. This is what I want. And Joseph comes and he tells them about the first dream that he had. And he tells them that I had this dream. And we were all out in the field. And we were represented by different sheaves of wheat. And then my sheaf stood up and all of your sheaves bowed down before me to worship me. Bowed down humbly before me. Now think about it for just a moment. Think about the attitude that the brothers already had towards Joseph. And then think about the implications of what he is saying and the fact that they are assuming that this is Joseph is saying, here's what I want to see happen in life. It's easy to understand why they become so angry. Essentially what Joseph is, is coming to them and what they're hearing Joseph saying is this, is you all know that dad loves me more than you, right? Well, let me tell you about my dream. Then he tells them a dream, and they, he said, and so the sum of it is, not only does dad love me more, God loves me more too. And one day you all will be bowing down before me. I mean, how do you think the brothers are going to respond to something like that? They didn't like him in the first place. And now his self-centeredness, obnoxiousness knows no bounds. They're going to respond and say, you know, you are the most self-centered, egotistical person I know. And, now, and you don't even shut it off when you go to sleep. You dream about being better than us. And then what is particularly amazing against that backdrop is Joseph comes back and says, you didn't like my first dream. Let me tell you about my next dream. And this time, not only will you bow down, but the, the, the sun and the moon representing mom and dad, they're all going to bow down before me too. To the point that even his father, who loves him, says, knock it off although his father did keep his word in mind. And I want you, that's our cast of character. I want you to move quickly to, uh, to Genesis chapter 50. So we look toward the end of the story. Because in Genesis chapter 50, we see an awesome statement about God's sovereignty that we need to understand and we need to relate to in our lives. We'll begin reading in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us 
and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So essentially what has taken place here is Joseph has lived his life. You know the story, Joseph's brothers, soon after the passage we initially read, had enough of Joseph. They were all out in the field. Joseph shows up one day. They just said, you know, we're sick and tired of him. Uh, they decide they've had enough. And so one of the brothers has, a, I think, an understandable response and says, let's just kill him. And um, one of the bro- they throw him down in a well. And one of the brothers thought, no, that might be problematic. We don't actually want to kill him, so let's just sell him. We'll sell him to some passing merchants. And then they realized they needed a cover story, so they took his coat that his father gave him. They dipped, uh, dipped it in some animal blood and said, an animal killed your son and you know, tore his body up into pieces, and here's, here's all that we were able to save. Joseph, uh, so the father thought that he was dead. The brothers thought they were rid of him for good. Joseph is sold from one merchant. They pass him off to somebody else. He finds employment in the household of a very wealthy, powerful man in Egypt, a man named Potiphar. And there he's in charge of everything, and he seems to be doing well. If you have to be a slave, it seems to be as good of a circumstance to be a slave as you can be. But Potiphar's wife decides that she's interested in him. She hits on him. He refuses her. She accuses him of attempted rape. You get the intention, if we, uh, um, uh, idea if you look at the story that Potiphar doesn't really believe his wife. He, there, uh, Joseph has shown faithfulness in, in certain ways. He seems to have grown up through his difficult experiences to some degree. But what's he going to do? He's not going to call his wife a liar. He's not going to bring scandal into his own house by saying, yeah, my wife hit on my servant boy. And so he sends Joseph to prison. While he's in prison, he meets two guys who work for the Pharaoh. I don't, I don't recall. Or they, they, they are, um, they're there because they'd gotten on the bad side of the Pharaoh. Um, and while they're there and he gets to know these guys, both of those guys also have dreams. And Joseph not only is a dreamer, but God grants him the ability to interpret dreams. And so he's talking with these two guys. And to the one guy, he said, your dream is fine. You have nothing to worry about. You'll be restored. You'll be back where you need to be and where you want to be before too long. And the other guy, he just said, I hope you have a will. Um, but to the guy he said was going to be restored, he said, remember me. And, and talk positively about Pharaoh. Maybe he'll have mercy on me. And the guy said, of course. And he was restored back to his position in Pharaoh's service, close to Pharaoh, close relationship with Pharaoh, and for two years. He didn't say anything at all about this man he had met in prison. Two years. And when we look back at it at this point, thinking how far back it was and the lifespan of somebody, we think, yeah, it's two years. It's inconvenient, but it's two years. Two years. Every day you're thinking you're getting out tomorrow. Two years. You're wrongfully in jail in the first place. You're hoping to get out, and yet there is no sign of hope until finally Pharaoh had a dream and he could not interpret the dream. And the guy that was in his service said, you know, that reminds me. I met a guy, and he was pretty good at interpreting dreams. You might want to bring him in and ask what your dream means. And so they sent for Joseph. Joseph interpreted the dream, prophesied the fact that there would be a famine coming to the land, and then strategically offered a plan that people should put some things aside, stockpile 
resources so that even during the famine, the people would be able to eat. And the plan was so successful that not only did they have enough to preserve all of Egypt, they had enough to preserve anyone who, uh, who they chose to. Because it worked out so well, Pharaoh made Joseph his right-hand man. He was the most powerful man in all of the world at that point, other than Pharaoh himself, but he was the functional leader of the known world because the famine was so great, every known nation was coming to Egypt asking for mercy and for provision, and Joseph had all power over that. Famine is now gone, and in that time, his brothers living outside, they were out of work, farm wasn't working. They came begging for help, help, not knowing that it was their brother. Bow down before him in fulfillment of the vision, seeking wheat, essentially, as the original, as the original dream was. Bowing down before him, asking for the provision, and Joseph graciously provided it. Now, we'll get to one question that's a pertinent question. is How does such an obnoxious 17-year-old grow to be such a gracious, powerful leader later on? But that is the backdrop of what we're looking at right now. The brothers are coming in because after he's, Joseph has provided for them, brought the family in, and has blessed them, continues on his job, now dad has died. If you've ever seen The Godfather 2, it's kind of a scene like that. The brothers are thinking like Michael Corleone. It might be a Michael Corleone guy. He was nice to us while dad was still alive, but now dad's gone. Watch your back and don't go fishing. But that's, um, and so they're worried. And so they sent a message saying, this is what Jacob messed from Jacob, although we have no indication that Jacob actually said it. We don't know whether he did or not. But essentially their note says this, Dad said, be nice to us. And the text says, in verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why did he weep? It might be because while he certainly was aware that his father had passed, you know, if somebody you love is gone, it doesn't take a lot when it's reminding of their passing to make the emotions come to the surface. It may be that he was weeping because he remembered his father and his father's passing and he missed that. But I suspect even more so it was because he was weeping because his brothers didn't understand him. And they assumed the worst of him. They assumed that he was a man that was of spite and now a man of power and ability and was with motive and might do them harm. And it's not the man that he is. And so Joseph weeps. Joseph says this in verse 18. His brothers came down before him, and he said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, verse 19, this is, this is Antoine key. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's a beautiful picture that we need to deal with two issues, and we need to do it relatively quickly. One is there's a beautiful demonstration, and Joseph is explaining the beauty of God's sovereignty and the salvation of his family and in all the circumstances that led to it. 
he is also demonstrating the beauty of God's grace in the transformation of the character of one who is deeply flawed to one who is reflecting the character of Christ. Now, sovereignty is one of those words that sometimes we're uncomfortable with. For some, it's just that one of those religious-sounding words, though it's not merely religious. Sovereignty is attributed to any monarch, any king. That means they have all rightful authority in whatever their sphere is. The sovereignty of God simply means God has all rightful authority in his sphere, which is, well, the whole universe, everything that he has created, everything in heaven. God is sovereign over all things. He has the authority. He has the ability to carry out whatever his plans are, and he acts on his plans, as we've seen in the story of Joseph through these, these pages. Because what we need to see is that everything between Genesis 37 and Genesis 50 is God acting out his sovereignty to fulfill his purposes as he has already decreed them. He's doing so in demonstrating his power in ways that are baffling and in ways that we would not choose. But nevertheless, we must hang our hats on the fact that Scripture says God is sovereign. That makes some people uncomfortable. One of the reasons is understandable it makes us uncomfortable. If God is sovereign, then they wonder, then why is there evil in the world? So is God sovereign and, and able to do something about it? Or, and just not, doesn't care? Or is God not really sovereign after all, at least not in details? I've even heard of one woman who declared, I, will, I would not worship a God who is sovereign. Because that question plagued her so greatly. But we cannot miss the fact that the scriptures declare outright and then show evidence that God is sovereign and perhaps nowhere better than in this story of Joseph and the salvation of his family. If you think about it for just a moment, where would the family be if everything that happened to Joseph had not happened? Had Jacob become a big, better father and just said, hey guys, I've had it, learn to reconcile, deal with your differences, group hug. And everybody got along and they didn't sell him into slavery. Well then he would have been there with them, little Jewish boy, having no connection to the Pharaoh whatsoever so that when the famine came and the land was starving, they would have had no access. Even if somebody else had come up with the plan to preserve and have a storehouse, this family would have had no access to any of that and they would have starved along with masses of other people that starved at that point in time. But the fact that he was sold and then he was sold into Potiphar's home and then Potiphar's wife leveled false accusations against him, leading him to prison. And then when he got into prison, meeting two guys who knew the Pharaoh, not just worked for Pharaoh, but knew the Pharaoh personally, and he was able to use a gift that God had enabled him to gain favor with the, uh, and, and be brought back to memory so that the guy speaks to the Pharaoh and says, I know a guy. A little Jewish boy was going to have no access to this, except that God was at work in every detail along the way in order to accomplish the salvation of this family and God's purpose, because this is the family through whom God said he was going to bless the entire world. God was at work in every detail of this. Demonstrating his sovereignty and his care, because his care is shown in the ultimate good of the people. We have to deal with this, and it's hard. We like the story 
we may even like the demonstration of God's sovereignty, but when it comes down to our lives, if you are anything like me, there's a big disconnect between what I know theologically and the way I want to function, the way I do function day in and day out. Because when I find myself in the midst of a storm, my tendency is not to say, I see I'm the better for this. My tendency is to say, God, get me out of this pit. And I look at the circumstances that are causing me anxiety or trouble or disturbance, and I just want God to deal with the circumstances. Not really mindful of God's ultimate purpose and what he is doing in me even during these times. Think about Joseph for just a moment. Can you imagine, even if he had some idea of how his first dream was going to come to fruition, that he would one day be the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, and through him he would protect not only Egypt and his, his family and Egypt and many of the other nations throughout the earth, how many of the circumstances that he did go through do you think he would have chosen to volunteer for? I mean, if I find and I'm going to be, in years to come, the second most powerful man on the earth, my plan is probably, back especially when I was 17, is probably not to say, you know what, I'm going to skip college and I'm just going to get sold into slavery. And then when I go into slavery, I'm going to go to jail. And then while in jail, I figure that since I'm a criminal and I'm charged of heinous offenses against a friend of the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh is going to become my friend and then let me out of here and then give me the position. It is not a career path. Joseph is more like me. He cries out, wants out, wants to be out of the circumstance. And there's nothing wrong with asking to be delivered from circumstance. But we must realize God's purpose is never thwarted, even when it seems like each of these dead ends had come into his life. And that not only was God fulfilling his purpose through his sovereignty, he was answering our other question. How does such an obnoxious 17-year-old jerk turn into such a benevolent, gracious man? And the answer is because of God's providence and God's sovereignty, he is at work in Joseph even as he is planning for the future. God's sovereignty and God's goodness are our only hope, and he is at work in your circumstances, whatever they are. But we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe this? Do I really believe that God is sovereign? I know that you hear whenever difficulties come in, somebody probably says to you, we know that all, God works all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. I give you permission to smack them when you're in the men. It's true, but it's rarely as helpful. And we, we need to understand, most of us have a difficulty making that connection. We assume if we're going through hardship, God either doesn't care or we've done something. We don't realize that God is far more concerned with the transformation of our hearts than he is with our comfort. And God is at work in shaping us to be men and women who are reflective of his desire, even as he's working out his purposes in our lives. And sometimes that comes through difficulty and hardship, but they are not outside of God's provision. Our difficulty is because even if we grasp that God is sovereign, we still wonder if God is good. And if you wonder that this morning, I just want to point you in another direction as the ultimate evidence of the fact that God is not only sovereign, but God is good. Because there was another son who was loved above all of his brothers, and his brothers hated him. 
and sold him for a few pieces of silver and stripped him of his clothes and stripped him from the love of his father. And after he has been stripped from the love of his father, he cries out as Joseph did from the pit, but from the cross. And as Joseph's father could not hear him, the other son's father did hear him and responded in silence. The difference between those two sons, however, is this. Joseph was the victim of his own sinfulness and the sin of others. He was a victim. Whereas the other son says, even though I have known no sin, I'm not a victim to anyone. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down for the people that I love. And in so doing, he has reconciled a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself, brought us peace with God, and then has provided us everything that we could possibly hope for. God's sovereignty in working out his purpose and our and his goodness are perfectly demonstrated in the person of Christ, who is the other son, the one to whom Joseph actually points. And I have a dream for our church and for my life, and it's this, that we would be a people who learn to believe that God is sovereign and God is good and live in the light of that reality. Because the peace and the hope we desire is only found when we believe that God is in control and he's working out all things for our good and his purposes together. Let me pray. Father, as we come this morning, I do pray that we would be a people who would be willing to look at our own hearts. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes to our own hearts and to see where we may struggle with the issues of your sovereignty. There are some who may reject it theologically. Lord, I pray that you would show them this story and help them to realize that there, there is no other explanation. But most of us wrestle with it devotionally. And while we know that you are in control, we continue to find ourselves racked with anxieties and fears, fears of the future of our culture, fears about our job, fears about relationships. And Lord, while the fears may be rooted in very difficult real circumstances. I pray that we would realize that you are also good, that you have loved us and have shown it through the giving of your Son for us, that we may believe and know that you are sovereign, you are good, and that you are our hope. Lord, help us to live and to die in the joy of this understanding. Free us that we may be transformed even by difficult circumstances, shaped to be like Christ, fulfilling your purpose for us, even as you fulfill your purpose for the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.